0: Good afternoon. It's Friday the 2nd of June, 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. And joining me by video link today, we have Vanessa Bailey and Debbie Evans. Welcome to the program, both. Uh, Now, uh, everybody's going to groan when I do this, but we're going to lead off with Philip Schofield. So let's bring him on screen. And I just wanted to highlight a couple of tweets uh, that kind of give an idea of what people on Twitter are thinking about this. So uh, this is uh, one Uh, from Mark A Day of Days uh, saying, will this be Schofield's Prince Andrew moment? Uh, This could break the internet from 6 a.m. Friday morning. And this is because the BBC uh, decided uh, to put uh, Amal Rajan in front of uh, Philip Schofield uh, with their typical, uh, increasingly typical uh, Moody um, interview in, in the sense of the lighting and the staging of it and so on. So this is Philip Schofield, the interview. Let's look at another tweet on this. Uh, when you think you're doing a Princess Diana, but you're more Prince Andrew, is uh, what Charlie Shakespeare is saying. Um, so anyway, on uh, the Radio 4 Today program this morning, um, the uh, interviewer was speaking to uh, Caroline Dynage, who is the chair of the Culture, Media and Sports Select Committee in the House of Commons. Uh, and what's interesting is that this uh, the MPs are starting to get very interested in the Schofield. Story and the question is why. So let's just listen to what Caroline Dinage her little segment of what she had to say.
1: Because this is a a, a significant matter of concern, I think, for, for people across the country and, and for my committee. It's you know, that this particular incident to one side, it has shone a light on a whole a whole system of of issues which which have been encountered around around whistleblowing, uh, people in this particular case specifically raised this issue with um, with ITV bosses, were the specific whistleblowing procedures in place that we would want to see. Uh, there is a there is a suggestion of money changing hands. In the letter that I received from Dame Carolyn McCall earlier this week, she said that this um, employee left in 21, but ITV had continued to offer their support and continued to do so. And I want to know whether that means in the case of um, you know moral uh, emotional support or does that mean financial support and what kind of precedent does that set and whether there have been any non disclosure agreements used in this and what and what potential damage that could cause this is not just about ITV this is about um, setting a precedent for other public service
0: broadcasters So this is quite interesting because uh, what the chair of the Culture Select Committee in the House of Commons is attempting to do here is to suggest that ITV is a public service broadcaster, which it isn't. There are only two public service broadcasters in the UK. That's the BBC and Channel 4. Um, ITV is a private company. uh, And so whatever goes on within ITV is ITV's uh, business. Uh, on a commercial basis and an uh, employment law basis, but it uh, doesn't seem to me to be a reason for MPs to be getting involved. So what's going on here? Is this an attempt by uh, members of parliament to uh, increase control of the media uh, by using this fairly sordid affair uh, to, to do it? But the other point that I just want to very briefly make is, is this. This is now the third time that I'm aware of that the BBC uh, has decided to, to run this type of interview. Um, so the first one that I remember is, uh, was Ricky Dierman, who was, of course, the person uh, uh, accused, as they say, of satanic abuse uh, over the Hampstead uh, satanic abuse case, uh, which the ma- mainstream media now calls conspiracy theory. Uh, and they give uh, him an opportunity uh, with, very much with the same type of staging, the same type of lighting and so on, to give the same type of interview. And then of course, uh, that was followed up with Prince Andrew as well. So the BBC very keen to give uh, people ac- experiencing these types of op- opportunities, or so, sorry, these types of accusations, the opportunity to use their platform uh, to put their side of things. Um, so um, I don't know if you've got any thoughts on this, Vanessa, but I find it a bit concerning that, that something which is really nothing to do with MPs has suddenly become to do with MPs um, and uh, setting aside the whole issue of the distraction of the event itself. Uh, it seems to be an attempt by uh, Parliament to to uh, decide how uh, media organisations should be operating.
2: Yeah, and I mean, what I find, you're, you're absolutely right to pick on the fact that the BBC gives a platform to effectively people who have potentially committed criminal acts, particularly against uh, children or minors. Um, And, you know, we have to remember, I can't remember if they did an interview with Jimmy Savile at the time that he was exposed, but for years they covered up uh, his crimes within the BBC. Um, And so, you know, we have to question, is the BBC an apologist for pedophilia? And of course, we know that it's an apologist for terrorism in Syria and across the region sponsored by the Foreign Office, amongst others. So what exactly is the BBC? I guess that has to be my question. Uh,
0: that is a very good question. Now, let's uh, just, speaking of the BBC, come on to Mariana Spring because uh, Children's Self Defence Europe, uh, via their Instagram account, have been uh, contacted by Mariana Spring uh, yesterday, I believe, or the day before, I think it was yesterday. And she said, hello, I'm reaching out regarding a podcast for BBC Radio 4 about the evolution of the UK conspiracy theory movement, and the alternative media associated with it. I'm writing now to invite you to respond to a number of points and issues as a result of our investigation and research we are considering including in our podcast series for Radio 4 and surrounding output. Uh, Evidence and testimony suggests that children's, she can't even get the name correct by the way, uh, Children's Health Defence's office in London has been in touch with the Light paper. And of course we mentioned uh, on uh, I think Monday's programme Uh, that uh, she had done an interview with the light paper uh, and contributed content and offered support to the publication. Uh, what is your relationship with the light paper? Has it contributed financially? And then she goes on to say, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. has been featured in photographs alongside the editor of a German newspaper. Uh, And uh, what is the relationship and uh, the relationship of children's health defense with the paper? The deadline for response to these points is Friday the 2nd of June. At seventeen hundreds, so that's today five PM. Obviously, best wishes, Mariana Spring. So um, clearly, uh, there is an effort now to contact uh, many organisations which the BBC perceives uh, as being somehow uh, promoting conspiracy theories. Um, and uh, well, we just will keep everybody updated on the, as as these uh, approaches go out from Mariana Spring, and we'll see what happens. We're looking. We're very much Vanessa looking forward to the. Uh, first episode of her new podcast series on Radio 4 to see what she thinks that she has.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, he's a presidential candidate in reality, but he's being stalked by the BBC as one of their complex of conspiracy theorists.
0: Yes. Let's move on. And I want to move on very quickly to uh, this story, which uh, remind everybody that uh, last month in April, or sorry, it's not last month anymore, is it? Because we're already in June. But in April, uh, French journalist or editor uh, of a French newspaper um, magazine was arrested or detained at least by counterterrorism police as he was entering the UK, apparently on behalf of the French government who uh, were accusing him of being involved in protests against Macron. Um, Well, this behavior by the British state continues. So the latest one is uh, Kit Klarenberg, who writes for The Grey Zone, uh, and Max Blumenthal here writing, British police detained journalist Kit Klarenberg interrogate him about The Grey Zone. Um, And uh, well, I just, Vanessa uh, pushed this article from Craig Murray at me uh, this morning because I wanted to just highlight this and suggest that everybody reads it and shares it because Craig Murray makes some pretty important points here. He says, three British journalists I know personally, Joanna Ross, Vanessa Bailey, and Kit Clarenberg have each in the last two years been detained at immigration for hours on re-entering their own country and questioned by police under anti-terrorist legislation. This is plainly an abuse of the power to detain at port of entry, because in each case, uh, they could have uh, could have been questioned at any time in the UK were the, their legitimate cause, and the questioning was not focused on their travels. They were in fact detained and interrogated simply for holding and publishing dissent opinion on foreign policy, and particularly particular for supporting a more collaborative approach to Russia, which lest we forget the UK is not at war with. Well, that's questionable, <laughs> that statement, but uh, the rest is fine. Uh, I have three times, you said, in the same period been questioned by police in my own home in Edinburgh for journalism over three separate matters. I spent four months in jail for publicizing essential information to show that a high-level conspiracy was behind the false... Accusations against Scottish independence leader Alex Salmond. Julian Assange remains in maximum security jail for publicising the truth about war crimes. Meanwhile, a new national security bill goes through Westminster Parliament, which will make it illegal for journalists uh, to possess or publish classified information. On top of that, uh, you have the online safety bill, which, under the excuse of protecting against paedophilia, will require social media gatekeepers to remove any kind of content the government deems as illegal. When you put all this together with the new Public Order Act, which effectively gives the police authority to ban any protest they wish to ban, uh, there's a fundamental change happening. Well, uh, I'd, I'd say also that is slightly inaccurate because the fundamental change, in my opinion, at least has already happened. Um, and this, we've got to be concerned about this, uh, Vanessa, because you know you've been on the receiving end of this. Ian Crane, if we go back a few years, was on the receiving end of this. Uh, the French journalist was on the receiving end of this, and now Kit Klarenberg as well. So this is, there's clearly an agenda here. It's not it's not by accident that these things are happening. And police, as Craig Murray says, overstepping the mark. I think I couldn't agree more with that statement.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And um, I know for a fact that Fiorella Isabel, um, who is a presenter on the Convocation and is currently based in Moscow, working for RT, she was uh, stopped and interrogated when she returned to um, the US. Um, You know, there's the Murat for its uh, kill list in Ukraine, which has been established. It, it, It has NATO hands behind it. So basically, they're happy to assassinate Dissident journal, journalists who are reporting from Donbas, uh, Donetsk, Luhansk, etc. Um, so yeah, you know it's becoming a, um, a very dangerous profession right now to be uh, independent thinking as a journalist.
0: Um, the uh, the article in the Gray Zone says that uh, Kit Klarenberg had his uh, electronic devices uh, confiscated and he Mm. was required to give access to them and so on, and uh, one particular SD card containing material still hasn't (laughs) been given back to him, and it's not going to be given back to him. I mean, I think a very serious point we've got to make here is that if anybody's traveling internationally at this point who's involved in journalism of any kind needs to be bringing uh, equipment with them which is effectively uh, fresh without any content Mm. on it.
2: Yeah. And actually, um, Alex contacted me, you know, just to get some advice about if he was coming to the UK in the future, Alex Thompson. And um, I sent him the letter that my lawyer at the time had sent to the Metropolitan Police, and they are actually the firm that is handling Julian Assange's uh, case. And she made the very valid point that as a journalist, you, you do often have Confidential classified information on your equipment, and therefore there should be procedures by which the police return um, that information to you intact. Um, they inform you what they're going to do with it, etc. And in some cases, they shouldn't be able to to remove that information. Um, and also the fact that they promised me they would send me documentation of my questioning six hours questioning. Um, They never sent it despite chase up letters from the lawyer. So I've never received any official record of my interview. Um, The lawyer requested uh, the recording of the interview six hours, and the transcript and none of that has ever been supplied. So I think you also have to add that they are acting relatively lawlessly. Uh, in how they deal with the aftermath of your questioning or interrogation, however you want to look at it.
0: Yes. Okay. Thank you for that. Okay. Let's move on then to health matters. Um, And well, good news, perhaps. Uh, Simplify. Uh, Let's have a look at this. This is all about uh, cancer and uh, the ability to um, test for cancer. So this is a blood test for more than uh, 50 types of cancer. It's showing real promise, apparently, in this uh, simplified trial. Uh, So the simplified study will evaluate the revolutionary multi-cancer blood test, Galeri, for future implementation in the NHS. Cancer is easier to treat if it's diagnosed early, is what they say, so let's just have a look at some of this. Galeri is a blood test developed by Grail LLC that can detect over 50 types of cancers, over 47 of which lack recommended screening in the UK today. With a low false positive rate of less than 1% all through a single blood draw. Using revolutionary next-generation sequencing technology, Galeri has potential uh, to complement existing screening programs and current tests to enhance early-stage diagnosis when cancers uh, can be treated more successfully. So on the face of it, that sounds like very good news. But, uh, Debbie, uh, once again, we come back to yet another uh, trial, another program, uh, which has genetic uh, sequencing at its heart. And so we just see more and more data collection, more and more uh, attempts to, to uh, sequence the human genome of everybody in the country.
3: Yes, good afternoon, everyone. And, uh, you know, we have to remember the word prevention here, Because we're not testing people with symptoms or that they're sick. We're testing healthy people. And I'd remind everyone of the Galeri trial. And the Galeri trial um, looked at, well, they say that 1,000 people get diagnosed with cancer a day. And the Galeri trial looked at 140,000 people. And this research all took place being funded by GRAIL. Now, you'll remember we've talked about Grail before. Grail is the Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos company that was then bought out by Illumina and is now embedded in our NHS system. This is testing healthy people for cancer in order to prevent cancer. Because of course, don't forget, we've got a cancer mRNA jab on its way to the UK. So this is all about prevention. This is all about gathering data. This isn't in anybody's best interest because, I'm sorry, but if somebody's going to send, if a healthy person's gonna send a test off and then it's going to show that maybe they're in early stages of cancer, what happens to them then? Do they go to the end of a seven and a half million waiting list in the NHS? because that's effectively what's gonna happen.
0: Yes, and that's uh, the why perhaps I'm a little bit cynical about this because you know if you don't have the, the foundations in place to provide the care, uh, then this can't be really anything more than data collection this is how I see it. But anyway, others may have a different view. Let's move on to uh, Asilomar, uh, which is a name I'm not familiar with, Debbie.
3: Right. Yeah. Well, in order to find out what's going to go, what's going to happen in the future and what's happening now, it's important that we look back. And, and a lot of people haven't heard of Asilomar 75. It's It was a conference that took place in 1975 with 140 professionals, including biologists, lawyers, doctors. They all met at Pacific Grove to discuss biomedical research. Now this was the birth. This is where it all started. It started with um a, a guy called Paul Berg who actually only died recently just this year and uh, Maxine Singer and this is all to do with Sanger. So this is the birth and a, a few scientists have just been been interviewed not so long ago about their recollections about what took place at Asilomar 1975. I've got a very short clip. Let's have a look.
0: The major concern was that there could be organisms created that would cause potential disease, harm of some sort. There was concern at the time by using E. coli as the cloning vehicle for doing most of these initial studies in the, uh, at the time of Vassilomar, that we were going to create unknown pathogens. We were going to convert E. coli to a very dangerous agent that, that, that didn't live symbiotically with other bacteria in our GI tract. Uh, we were going to cause possibly, and people said, epidemics of cancer
4: by cloning unknown genes, uh, making uh, E. coli very robust
0: and being able to spew out huge quantities of potentially very dangerous proteins.
2: Safety of of new and still uh, uh, unproven science uh, was an issue. Uh, It was a question of safety, but also a question of of establishing the principle that science is a, a process that can effectively regulate itself to the public good.
0: It wasn't an emergency situation, Um, but it did seem like we could cause trouble and we didn't want to.
3: It's an absolutely fascinating conference and I would um, advise everybody go and look and do some research into the Asilomar conference. And you might note there that special mention was made to E. coli. And we've talked about E. coli before, and I'll be talking about E. coli some more in the future. But, you know, what happened back then is happening now. And I'll draw everybody's attention to an article that I wrote that's on Editor's Choice on the UK column front page. The NHS long term plan and mental health implementation plan, Phoenix or Dinosaur. I really would urge everyone to go and look at it because everything that I'm predicting is happening now is in the NHS long-term plan. And it's nice to see that Wired have caught up. Oh, sorry, yes, there's a slide for the NHS. Some some of the points that I've highlighted there. And knowing that you were going to be talking about cancer, Mike, I just highlighted a few of the points that I made a long time ago in this article from the NHS long-term plan talking about exactly what we've just been talking about, diagnostic testing for cancer and also diagnostic testing for cancer in children even more worryingly. So that's to come. But it's nice to know that Wired are catching up. And thanks very much to Alex Thompson for pointing me in the direction to this latest article of Wired. It's very recent. And I've just copied and pasted a few things that they cover But you can see there that they say to doctors and nurses working 75 years ago when the UK's NHS was founded, a modern modern ward would be completely unrecognisable. Fast forward into the future and hospitals are likely to look very different again. These are some of the changes you're likely to see in years to come. These aren't in years to come. Fully autonomous surgical robots are here now. 3D printed organs are here now. Virtual reality therapy is here now. And smart toilets to monitor and detect disease, you can look at Bill Gates for that. So jumping forward, I want to bring people's attention to something called the Athena agenda. We're talking really uh, uh, synthetic biology here. So the Athena agenda is advancing the Apollo program. The Apollo program was um, prior to the Athena agenda, and it was actually the bipartisan commission on defense. So here we go, Mike, back to the. Uh-huh. It was only in 822. My next slide, you just want to maybe freeze my next slide, which will just give you a little bit of information on the bipartisan commission. And it was basically talking about that the USA were terribly unprepared for any biological threats. So I'll let you freeze the screen on that because it's a big document. And I just want to bring some some of your attention to some specific parts of it, but I would advise that people go and read it. So the biological threat landscape, the recommendation there in this document is that we develop at least one vaccine candidate for each of the 26 viral families that infect humans. I'll let you freeze the screen on that so you can take it in because it is a lot of information. But let's look at the viral families that they want to develop a vaccine candidate for. Most of them, I'm afraid, I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce. So you can freeze the screen there, but you can see that it's a huge, huge amount. And this is being planned right now. Now, what they're planning on doing, too, is developing these therapeutic drugs, the ones that we've been talking about for ages, the antivirals, the monoclonal antibodies. These are all going to be accelerated. You can see at the bottom there, since we are uncertain of what the next biological threat will be, the traditional approach of developing a therapeutic for a single virus after it merges will not adequately prepare us. Multipathogen antiviral therapeutics could address a broad spectrum of viral pathogens, much like antibiotics can address multiple bacterial pathogens. So how are we going to do that? Oh, well, guess what? We're going to find lots of ways to vaccinate you without using needles. So what are they suggesting that that we use? Well, we could have microneedle patches and we could have intranasal we could have inhalable drugs and vaccines. And actually, you know what? We could either pick them up ourselves from the pharmacy or they'll be mailed to us. So it will be self-administration of vaccines going forwards. Now the UK are way ahead in this. We're way ahead from the US. The USA currently in terms of genomes, they're only sequencing um, 1% of their population for COVID-19 cases, whereas the UK are sequencing 9%. So you can see it's a much bigger agenda in the UK. And at the bottom there, I've just highlighted the need for genomic surveillance. Again, this is all down to surveillance. The uh, covid Agenda hasn't gone away. So how are they going to how are they going to do this? You know, non needle injections. What are we looking at here? Well, terrifyingly, we're looking at robotic noses. And in the next yes, in that slide there, you can see the non invasive detection method based on volatolomics. Now that's a whole new word, and we'll, I'll explain what that is in a second. But it's to detect pathogens like COVID nineteen, like the E nose. Now, the e-nose is an app that you use. It's quite simply an app and they smell your breath. It's sniffing your breath and it's using the nose. So volatilomics, sorry, I'm not very good at the it, the I Can't even say that now. I think I'm so exasperated by all of this. I can barely begin to report it. But we're basically talking robotic n- noses. We're talking that disease is going to be smelt on your breath now. That's how bad it's got. So robot, there you go, study finds. This article came out in 2022 of robot noses could soon detect undiagnosed diseases by smelling someone's breath. And we can do that via an app. And just to back that up, there's an academic paper that you might want to go and look at, and that again was only published in June 2022. So, this is a whole new area, and what I would say is this synthetic biology is invading our life everywhere. Do you know what's in your shampoo, for example? Because you might be interested to know that they're using nanomaterials in your shampoo, your hair is very valuable, but that's uh, maybe for another news. But not just your your shampoo, but do you know what's in your sunscreen? Because also we've got nanoparticles that are being used in sunscreens. And anecdotally, my son told me, because we live in Cornwall, so we've got a lot of children on holiday at the moment using sunscreens, and there seems to be a rise in children um, that are having allergic reactions to sunscreen. So I'm just hearing it anecdotally, there's been nothing reported in the news. So if anybody else is experiencing that, please do let me know. Um, because what do we know about sunscreen allergies at the end of the day? And there's plenty of evidence to, to for you to go and have a look at for you to be able to make your own informed decision before you place something on your skin, but also eye drops you know that's where we're going to we've got nanoparticles that are being used in eye drops so people that are picking up eye drops from their uh, chemist from their pharmacy do you know what's in them so this is a whole new area so i would just suggest that people look at the asilomar conference the athena agenda and then translate it into where we are now
0: yes okay thank you for that so so i mean just to summarize, basically, Debbie, what we're suggesting, is, what you're suggesting, is that, that uh, this is building whole new markets for uh, future drugs. And you've got to ask the question then: How did the human race survive this long? Because um, it seems like without what they're proposing for us, you know, the, the suggestion is we're going to die without it. So, so uh, uh, I'd like to know how we've managed to live this long.
3: I'd like, to know the same. I'd like to know the answer to that very question, Mike.
0: <laughs> yeah, okay. Okay, if you like what the UK Column does, you'd like to support us, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us out there. Um, you could pick something up at the UK Column shop, uh, t-shirts, hoodies, bags, that kind of thing, uh, but please do share material you find on the various platforms. Uh, now, a little bit of sad news. Uh, the, I have to announce the passing of Professor Arnie Burkhardt. Now, many UK column members will have seen Professor Burkhardt on uh, previous Doctors for COVID Ethics symposia that we ran. Uh, so uh, he is a German pathologist or was a German pathologist researcher. Uh, he was uh, teaching for many years in universities of Hamburg, uh, Bern, other universities, the uh, professorships in Japan, in the United States, in Korea, in Sweden, in Malaysia, in Turkey. Hugely uh, experienced and hugely respected uh, doctor. And of course, he was looking, he was uh, probably the only person that we know of that was actually running uh, autopsies and postmortems on people that had uh, been said to have died from, uh, from COVID-19. Uh, and looking at uh, the, particularly where the uh, spike protein was finding its way uh, into various parts of of the body and asking very much uh, whether um, vaccination was uh, part and parcel of how they passed away. So I'm sad to see uh, Professor Arnie Burkhardt go. A quick reminder that uh, today is uh, the beginning of the Better Way conference. It lasts until Monday. Uh, There are still virtual tickets available if anybody wants to uh, get involved with that and uh, So head over to the uh, Better Way Conference website. Uh, Lots of very interesting speakers there. Uh, And Vanessa, um, you just wanted to highlight uh, a little bit of video pushed out by uh, Robert Stewart.
2: Yeah, I mean, um, you know, I understand that people feel they can't do anything to push back Mm -hmm. against all the measures that are being brought in. But Robert published this on his Facebook page a couple of days ago. Um, This is at Tower Bridge. And these um, placard holders have been around for some time now. I think they started around six months after the start of the whole COVID project. But they've obviously expanded into a lot of other subjects now. And it's been incredibly successful. I remember seeing Robert doing this uh, with a number of people that I know, activists and so on. Um, in various areas of London, particularly regarding um, the vaccine rollout. And and they were getting a really positive feedback um, from people on buses, people in cars and so on. So I just wanted to put it out as a little bit of positivity and optimism that this kind of thing can still work because you're um, interacting directly with the public in a um, non-confrontational way, you're, you're simply putting the information in a very visible context for them. And people generally are responding positively. And it can, you know, encourage them to go and do some research. So for those that are struggling to think what they can do, maybe they can establish something similar in their own area. Maybe they can join in um, with the group that Robert is part of, etc. You know, just just a little nudge.
0: Yeah, brilliant. Thank you. Um, Okay, let's uh, move on to international things. And of course, the the news from yesterday, uh, as we were talking about uh, the BBC's uh, interviews of South African politicians and questioning whether uh, if Vladimir Putin were to go to South Africa, whether he'd be arrested or not, uh, then, of course, uh, uh, Sergei Lavrov uh, is in South Africa, or was yesterday at least, uh, to discuss BRICS uh, and other things. Um, so uh, he, this was quite a positive meeting and this was all about uh, economic affairs and the relationship between Russia and South Africa. And as we know, the South Africans saying that they consider Russia to be an ally uh, and that that won't change no matter how much pressure comes on them from the West. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, Lavrov saying some pretty strong things about what's going on in the West. Um, so let's just have a look at this. Um, Now, beginning with uh, his comments about F-16s being delivered uh, to Ukraine, he said that this is an an unacceptable escalation. Uh, He said, I think there are reasonable people in the West who understand this, but everything is being dictated by Washington, London and their satellites inside the EU. Uh, They are already discussing decolonization of Russia, meaning the dismembering of our country. This is playing with fire. Now. Uh, Lavrov, as usual, is very calm and collected with what he says, although they're strong words that he's using. But uh, perhaps Medvedev is less calm whenever he comments on it. So let's look at what he had to say more or less about the same thing on Twitter. Uh, and he's particularly uh, beginning with uh, James Cleverly in his comments. So he says the UK Foreign Secretary Cleverly has stated that Ukraine has a legitimate right to protect force beyond its or sorry project force beyond its borders and undermine Russia's ability to project force in Ukraine itself. According to him, legitimate military targets beyond Ukraine's borders are part of its self-defense. Uh, the goofy officials of the UK, our eternal enemy, should remember that within the framework of the universally accepted international law which regulates modern warfare, including the Hague and Geneva Conventions with their additional protocols, their state can also be qualified as being at war. Today the UK acts as Ukraine's ally, providing it with military aid in the form of equipment and specialists, i.e. de facto, is leading an undeclared war against Russia. That being the case, any of its public officials, uh, either military or civil, who facilitate the war can be considered as a legitimate military target." So that's what Medvedev said, Vanessa. Now clearly that's a much stronger position than Lavrov is taking. But they're not so different, actually.
2: No, they're not. I mean, Lavrov is the consummate uh, diplomat, of course. Uh, Medvedev throughout the special military operation has been very much, I kind of tend to see it as the bad cop, good cop routine. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, And and it kind of works. But Medvedev, yeah, one expects him to be a lot more um, um, outspoken in his criticism than Lavrov, who, as I've said, He's
0: a diplomat, uh, but interesting that the penny seems to have finally dropped that the UK is certainly one of the leaders of the <laughs> of the gang here. Yeah,
2: finally. Yeah. Finally,
0: yes. <laughs> okay. Well, look uh, on Wednesday's program, Brian mentioned uh, Kosovo and what's going on in Kosovo. I thought we should uh, look at that in a little bit more depth. So uh, mm. let's uh, let's do that. Let's begin with this. Uh, K 4 attacked Serbs in Kosovo. Uh, There are wounded bursts of fire uh, echo, and there's some video. We saw a little bit of video on Wednesday, but uh, tell us what's going on there.
2: Um, Well, I'll kind of break it down into sections because it's incredibly um, complex, of course, the entire situation um, in Kosovo and in Serbia, but effectively in northern Kosovo, which is still considered by the majority of Serbians to be part of Serbia, and of course NATO split it away deliberately um, from Serbia from 1999 onwards. Um, for people to fully understand the history in all its complexity, I highly recommend uh, this interview with Dr. Marcus Papadopoulos and Kivork almasian on Suryana analysis, and I'll just summarize very briefly what Marcus has said in this interview and what he said previously. So what what he's explaining is that uh, Alexander Vucic, the president of Serbia is in reality, um, Tony Blair, Israel and the US man inside uh, Serbia. So therefore Vucic, whatever he's doing, he's following Effectively, the NATO roadmap. And that has been the case since October 2000 when there was a coup in Belgrade. And in reality, Western funded, financed, and created Optor took control in Belgrade and has been in control of the leadership in Belgrade since then. Um, Of course, the former Yugoslav army has been decimated by various uh, administrations since 1999. The Yugoslavian army uh, was 120,000 strong. Now Serbia itself only has an army of between 3,000 to 5,000. Now what Markus is saying, and many dissidents and um, activists in Serbia have told me, Vučić previously was staging the protests in Kosovo to give the impression that basically he supported the reintegration of Kosovo with Serbia, but in reality, that's not true. And he works in, in uh, collaboration with Albion uh, Kurti, who's the Albanian warlord president of, of the Kosovo um, project. And of course, these uh, protests started because effectively in April uh, elections were held. Um, considered, of course, to be corrupt uh, elections. They were boycotted by 90% of the Serbs living in the uh, area of northern Serbia. Oh, sorry, northern Kosovo. Um, And uh, effectively, what has happened in the last few days, the Albanian mayors of four um, regions or four districts in the northern area of Kosovo, so that's um, Mitrovica, Zvevkan, Zubin uh, Potok um, were appointed and so these protests, uh, the majority peaceful, were against uh, the the raising of the Kosovo flag above the city hall and this one is in Zvekan, where a thousand Serbs gathered in front of the city hall where these um, Albanian um, mayors tried to raise or their supporters tried to raise the Kosovo flag. So here are 1,000 Serbs in front of the city hall holding um, the Serbian flag and protesting peacefully. Um, And of course, what happened was that the violence was ramped up effectively by uh, KFOR, the the Kosovo forces, which are effectively described as NATO peacekeepers. So they comprise of of NATO member state, um, (coughs) sorry, uh, soldiers and military and here is where the claims that there were Russian um, elements within the protesters, because many of the K-4 vehicles um, were graffited over with uh, the Russian ZAD. But that detracts from the fact that the majority of Serbs, of course, are pro-Russia and anti-NATO for very obvious reasons. NATO bombed the hell out of um, Serbia in 99, including with uh, depleted uranium, etc., um, but what is really interesting is that I was also informed that on the day of uh, the mayor's taking office um, in those four districts, Vucic had actually organised with Kurti to bring on Albanian buses many of the Serbs from Northern Kosovo to Belgrade for a pre-arranged uh, rally. So, in other words, he he was trying to weaken. Um, the resistance against the imposition of these uh, Albanian um, mayors in northern Serbia. And of course, we have to remember that the Albanian factions have, since Kosovo kind of declared uh, illegally or unlawfully its independence in 2008. And even before that, they have carried out reprisals and recrimination against the Serbian population um, in the north of uh, Kosovo. Um, so I can't remember which video this is, Mike. Oh, the,
0: yeah. the protest itself.
2: Yeah. Okay. So this, these are the actual um, protests. Now, what is really interesting, again, is that, um, as I said, people that I spoke to, including Dragana Trifkovic, who heads up the Center for Geostrategic Studies, and you can check out her work and the work of many other uh, Serbian distance and academics there. Um, but she told me that basically in the past, Vucic has used um, criminal elements from inside Serbia, inside Belgrade, that he's relied on to go and put down um, the resistance protests uh, in Kosovo by the Serbs. Now he's trying, because the US is changing tack, and I'll talk about that in a minute, um, he's trying to distance himself from those criminal elements. And so in reality, those Criminal mafia elements in Belgrade know that their days are numbered. So apparently, they went to these areas in Kosovo deliberately to ignite uh, violence against uh, the K4 and the ROSU, which is the Regional Operational Support Unit. And you can see the guy holding the rifle there. He's part of ROSU um, Regional Operational Support Unit. Now, the interesting thing, Mike, ROSU replaced Kosovo Protection Corps, and you might remember that Kosovo Protection Corps was the transformation or the rebranding. Sorry, can we just go back to that image, Mike, because there's another element on that. Um, uh, so the Kosovo Protection Corps replaced the KLA. Now the Kosovo Liberation Army, of course, made up of al Qaeda and uh, Albanian warlords, was in fact transformed or rebranded by James Lezoer, who went on to form the White Helmets, the, the kind of, again, the, the rebranding to some extent of Al-Qaeda in Syria. So that's just an interesting connection there. But the guy on the left, now this is, he's actually wearing the badge of the 101st Airborne Brigade. And you'll remember this is an American Special Forces Brigade that is on um, alert to basically enter uh, Ukraine, Um, and to uh, bolster the Ukrainian forces. So what on earth is he doing um, at these protests in uh, Kosovo? But also the fact that the Rosso guy is holding um, the rifle suggests that the stories about live ammunition fire against protesters is absolutely um, verified. And of course, the Rosso elements actually do Uh, Descend from the Al-Qaeda Albanian warlord factions in 1999. But let's have a look. This is another interesting um, fact that was told to me by various people, including uh, Dragana. So here the U.S. actually comes out and says that it will restrict cooperation with Kosovo, despite having created the situation in Kosovo in the first place, after ethnic tensions flare up. Now, I've been told by very reliable sources in Serbia that two years ago, they were speaking to intelligence factions um, from the UK, I believe, UK or US, and they were basically telling them in the future, we're going to change tack. We're actually going to go against Kosovo and we will start supporting Serbia against Kosovo to try and weaponize Serbia and Serbian popular opinion against Russia. And of course, my contact simply laughed at him because she said, well, that's just never going to happen because in Serbia, the, the general sympathy is towards previously the Soviet Union and now for Russia. So here we see this coming to fruition to some degree. The US has outlined punitive actions against Kosovo for stoking ethnic tensions that led to NATO peacekeepers and Serb protesters being injured in the worst clashes taking place in the Balkan country this year. Now, it, it needs to be mentioned also that what this is doing is giving KFOR the opportunity to send extra security and troops and soldiers um, to Kosovo. 700 are, are um, designated to go to Kosovo uh, in the near future. And here we have Joseph uh, Boral saying we have three clear uh, requests new local elections now. So in other words, he's saying the uh, the, the elections that elected, the Albanian mayors were, were not acceptable, ensuring the participation of Kosovo Serbs wherein they had allowed the elections to go ahead without that and to start the work to establish the association of Serbian majority municipalities within EU-facilitated dialogue. Now, that's interesting because... That was actually embedded in the Brussels agreement of 10 years ago. So the fact that they are suddenly digging this up and saying that they're going to focus on it is is an indication um, of their change of tack on Serbia and Kosovo. So worth watching in the future. What does Vucic do? Um, immediately after these protests, well, he heads to the EU summit in Moldova, 12 kilometers more or less from the Ukrainian border, and he meets up with Vladimir Zelensky. Now, after being um, attacked in Serbian independent media, although there's not very much of that now because he's basically done pretty much what the UK wants to do, and he's uh, shut down most of the opposition Media, distant media in Serbia and has full control over the state media. Um, What he's claiming he's talking about is the uh, subject of sanctions on Russia, which he claims he has objected to. Um, And there you have him uh, shaking hands with Zelensky. And of course, it is known amongst the dissident circles in Serbia that Serbian factions have supplied weapons to Ukraine. So we can speculate quite confidently that perhaps this was also on the table of discussions between them. And then during various um, press uh, interviews, basically, Vucic says that countries from the Open Balkans initiative will seek greater access to EU funds. So that's a bit of a clue there. There is a big difference. I understand that we are not an EU country, but the difference must be reduced so that we can reach those countries faster. It is an important topic for the summit in June. And what I would say is very important is that I sent an invitation to all countries and the EU leadership and EC representatives that after Granada and London, one of the next two meetings should be held in Belgrade. That would probably be the biggest summit and a kind of crown of our efforts. So Vucic very clearly lobbying the EU there he says that he expects to see Schultz and Macron here, and there are some very nice photos of him and Macron hugging in Moldova. And in Belgrade in the next month, we will have countless visits. Uh, morovic'ki and the Benelux Troika, the Slovenian president, there will be plenty of them. I also expect a new meeting of the open Balkans. We will have to work even harder to preserve the interests of Serbia. Well, I would agree, I, I would argue not the interests of Serbia the interests of uh, Tony Blair, the UK, the US and Israel. And he did an interview uh, with La Stampa, the Italian media, and they asked him what will happen to the sanctions against Russia. That is one of the conditions, but you have allegedly refused it. Um, And he replied, for four out of five UN resolutions, we voted in line with other EU countries. We have no problem supporting the territorial integrity of Ukraine, Crimea, Donbass, Zaporozhye and Kherson belong to it, to Ukraine. So he's very clearly going against Russian um, policy in this statement. We condemn aggression. If we are talking about the accession process six months before entry, we should be fully aligned with European foreign policy. Well, I think that makes it very clear that he intends to go ahead with uh, putting sanctions on Russia. And let's compare Vucic to the Croatian president, who in his statement, um, I think it was at a conference in uh, Zagreb, glory to Ukraine is the slogan of chauvinists who killed Jews and Poles. And this was reported in Ukrainian Pravda, so by those that would uh, condemn this kind of statement. And if you move ahead. So he basically said that the slogan glory to Ukraine has the same origin as the cry of the Croatian Ustasa the extreme right-wing group that operated in the country during World War II. And the background, according to Ukrainian Pravda, the Croatian president has repeatedly made pro-Russian statements before. For example, in January, he called for not comparing the situation in Kosovo with the annexation of Crimea, saying that Crimea would never be Ukrainian territory again. So very interesting juxtaposition there. Croatia... Um, benefited from uh, the NATO operations against Serbia is here coming out openly in support of uh, the Russian special military operation compared to
0: Bucic. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Uh, now, uh, just to come back to Ukraine for a second, uh, here is uh, Vladimir Zelensky uh, meeting with representatives of BAE Systems. Um, and of course, we know that BAE Systems has... You know, done all kinds of uh, weapons deals in the list, not mention Al Yamama and Saudi Arabia and so on. Remind ourselves of that um, on behalf of uh, sort of British uh, geopolitical goals. But anyway, let's have a look at this. Uh, This is what he had to say meeting with representatives of the British defense company, BAE Systems, uh, CEO Charles Woodburn, managing director Gabby Costigan, and director of cooperation with Ukraine Christian Sear. He said, we discussed the localization of production in Ukraine. We agreed to start work on opening a BAE Systems office in Ukraine and subsequently repair and production facilities for the company's products. Uh, We are ready to become a major regional hub for the repair and production of various types of products of BAE Systems and are interested in making our relations more global. Uh, And then later on, he went on to say uh, that uh, BAE is truly a large-scale manufacturer of weapons, which we need now and which we will need in the future to guarantee the security of Ukraine and the entire region. Uh, We're working on creating a suitable base of production and repair in Ukraine. We're talking about a wide range of weapons from tanks to artillery. Uh, We will provide Ukraine and therefore all of Europe with such a new foundation uh, of strength. Um, And uh, so... You know, this fits very much with uh, what uh, Lavrov and so on were saying earlier on. This uh, is clearly Ukraine looking at this being a perpetual war, not ending anytime soon. They're certainly not coming to the negotiating table uh, anytime soon. Uh, And of course, uh, uh, this is a great deal for BAE if they can get it, and it's a very bad deal for the British taxpayer, because of course, it won't be the Ukrainians that are paying for this. Uh, It will be us at the end of the day. Now, uh, let's just very quickly, Vanessa, if we could uh, just bring us up to date with what's going on in Syria.
2: Yeah, some interesting developments. First of all, there's been a major clash um, uh, to the north of Damascus, close to the border with Lebanon, five Syrian Arab army soldiers killed in that. Um, It's not yet known uh, whether it was uh, terrorist or extremist uh, groups or whether it was smugglers, unlikely to be smugglers because they wouldn't normally uh, clash with Syrian army to this extent unless, of course, they're trying to import something um, high risk. And um, on Sunday night, um, Israel yet again attacked uh, Damascus for the 17th time this year, the 12th time since the 6th of February double earthquake tragedy. Um, This time, uh, they actually hit uh, areas south of Damascus. The interesting thing is that Washington Post today uh, released uh, an article talking about leaked documents that are talking about uh, um, an increase in Iranian activity uh, in the Northeast against U.S. military bases. And the Times of Israel claimed that, that this attack had actually targeted Hezbollah training ground to the north of Damascus, which is odd, because it was definitely not the north of Damascus that was hit. Um, so something quite strange going on, and I'm not quite sure um, you know, why on earth they should be surprised that Iran, Syria, Hezbollah are, are planning uh, strategic uh, operations to basically kick the US out of the northeast and to stop them occupying Syrian oil, which uh, this week they stole Another seventy odd uh, trucks of oil, the northeast, out for uh, either use by their own bases in Iraq or for trading on. So you know, as much as there is positive news in Syria, yeah. that access of
0: as yeah, I'm, I'm afraid you, I'm afraid you're breaking up quite badly there. But we we get we get what you're saying. So thank you very much for that, Vanessa. Now we just uh, very briefly uh, mention this. Uh, this is being reported in uh, Turkish press at the moment. Uh, Putin Zelensky to visit Turkey for talks with Erdogan. Uh, now they're not going to be visiting at the same time, of course. Uh, if it's happening now, there've been rumours that Putin is going to go to Turkey and visit Erdogan, who of course just become. Uh, been re-elected as uh, as head of state in Turkey, so uh, we wait to see whether there will, whether Putin will actually, or whether this news is confirmed. Um, there certainly has been skepticism in the past on this, uh, and we'll report uh, in due course. Uh, now, uh, Debbie, let's come back on well, health or is it about uh, censorship? Uh, let's have a look at this. Is the Daily Cloud saying? Did you know that the FDA has a rumor department.
3: Yeah, really interesting. Uh, great Daily Clout, uh, great article. Um, and I didn't know that the FDA had a, a rumor department. And you can see there that oh, it we says should say it's, it's true. rumor
0: control department. Sorry,
3: rumor control. Yeah. Yes. Sorry, rumor control department. So I flipped across to the FDA to see what was on their page and. There it is, Rumor Control Department, for the growing spread of rumors, misinformation, and disinformation about science, medicine, and the FDA is putting patients and consumers at risk. We're here to provide the facts. So I've got a little video snippet that might just tell you a little bit more.
4: Thousands of points of misinformation are shared online daily. They're false, inaccurate, or misleading, and can spread intentionally and unintentionally. Some individuals and organizations promote opinions online disguised as fact, and misinformation can spread six times faster than facts. So you may be misled by headlines or out of context statements, especially when shared by someone you trust. Social media promotes information that you engage with regardless of the truth. So confirm what you read with a reliable source. This may be a nonprofit fact-checking organization or government resource. The FDA is concerned that health misinformation is negatively impacting the public's health. Stick with the facts. To see how FDA is addressing misinformation, check out our Rumor Control webpage.
3: And if one of your family is giving you, in inverted commas, misinformation, don't trust them. Trust the state. I think that's the message that we're getting from that, isn't it? And is it going to come to the MHRA anytime soon? Probably.
0: Yes. Well, we we shall watch and wait. I don't think uh, the MHRA. I think don't think the MHRA needs a specific department. I think there's so many government departments doing this. Uh, now it makes no difference. I just wanted to very briefly end uh, on the topic of uh, education and uh, sex education in particular, because the government has decided to set up an independent panel on sex education. Um, they're saying that, uh, just to tell you a little bit of what it says in the, uh, in the press release, today, the Education Secretary, Gillian Keegan, has announced the formation of an independent expert advisory panel who advise on the review of the relationship, sex, and health education curriculum. This is the next step in progressing the government's mission to ensure that RSHE is taught in an age-appropriate way. And of course, this has uh, been the big issue over the last uh, number of couple of years. Uh, that in fact it's not being taught in an age appropriate way. Um, So I thought we would just have a brief look at who is going to be on this panel. Let's bring them on here. First of all, we've got uh, Professor Dame uh, Leslie Regan Uh, And she is a professor of uh, obstetrics and gynecology at Imperial College London. So, of course, you've got to get Imperial College on there. Uh, Then we've got uh, Sir Hamid Patel, who is chief executive of Star Academies, one of the big academy schools trusts. Uh, Then we've got uh, uh, Alistair Henderson is the next one on the list here. He's a barrister specializing in public law, human rights and equality law. Uh, we've got uh, Helena Brothwell, uh, who's Regional Director of School Improvement for David Ross Academy Trust, so another Academy Trust recommend, uh, represented here. And finally, Isabel Trowler, who is the Chief Social Worker for Children and Families in England, obviously uh, chief social worker, therefore government employee. So it's all independent. Uh, This is the first review of statutory guidance since it came into force in 2020, the government says. It will provide an opportunity to consider whether the guidance covers the right topics and offers teachers clarity on how to teach sensitive subjects and engage parents uh, positively. So um, it remains to be seen exactly how this is going to pan out, but basically they, uh, they begin work straight away Uh, And they're going to conclude their work by September 2023. So we don't have too long to to wait to see what the outcome of this is going to be and whether this is a a genuine reaction to uh, the level of protest that there has been and the the degree of concern that there's been over how these subjects are being taught in schools or whether it's uh, a cynical attempt to shut down that protest and that uh, disgust uh, from many, many people. We will wait and see. But anyway, we are out of time for now. I'm going to say thank you very much to Vanessa and to Debbie for joining me today. Uh, we'll be back in a few minutes uh, for some extra for UK column members. Um, otherwise, we'll be back 1 p.m. as usual on Monday. Hope everyone has a great weekend and we'll see you then. Bye-bye.